How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. Welcome to How Hard Can It Be, up close and personal with the real people in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Mike Triano, and you can follow me on Twitter at Mike Trap or on Medium at MikeTrap.com. All right, my guest this week is Dave Balter, founder and partner of Flipside Crypto, a data solutions and investment club for cryptocurrencies. Now, Dave really is a pillar of the Boston startup community, an innovation-obsessed builder of companies, often as a founder CEO, but also as a board member, advisor, or investor. As an operator, Dave's probably best known for Smarterer, which he founded, led, and sold to Pluralsight for $75 million in 2014, and BuzzAgent, which he founded, led, and sold to Dunhumby for $60 million in 2011. Dave was named one of the 30 most disruptive people in Boston Tech by Boston Magazine in 2016, was a finalist for E&Y Entrepreneur of the Year, and was recognized as a future legend by the Ad Club. He co-founded the Word of Mouth Marketing Association and authored two books on the subject, including Grapevine and the Word of Mouth Manual, Volume 2. As both an independent angel and venture partner in Boston Seed Capital, Dave's investments have included DraftKings, Promobox, Fitness Keeper, and Help Scout. A longtime Techstars mentor, Dave also co-founded Intelligently, a classroom space that helps star employees become managers, with his wife Sarah Hodges back in 2011, and sits on the board of directors of the Box Center for the Performing Arts. Dave and I go way back to the early 2000s when we were both executives in the General Catalyst portfolio and have been close friends since holding two Dave Balter tech proms with Sarah, Jen Lum, Court Johnson, and Nicole Stata. He is literally one of my favorite people, a constant source of good humor, good music, and good advice, both personal and professional. You'll hear about Dave's entrepreneurial journey in this conversation, and we'll dig into what's always been his superpower namely the ability to spot opportunity and act decisively to pursue it, even in the face of withering skepticism on the part of others. We'll close with some inside scoop on Flipside Crypto, fast becoming a leading light in Boston's cryptocurrency startup space. I think you're really going to enjoy this. So without further ado, here is my conversation with my good friend, Dave Balter. Yeah, so Kurt Nickish told me to talk on the side here. So. Love, Kurt. That's what I try to do. Okay. Talking to the side. Um, well, thanks for coming out, braving the elements. It's just fucking butt-clenchingly cold out there. It was, it was a little chilly getting it's, over it's here. It's been a uh, brutal uh, stretch um, back for the holidays. It's January 2nd as we record this. and uh, Dave and I are both dads and recovering from a lot of dadness. Holiday holiday dadness. Yeah. 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 Um, well, it's great to have you here, Balter. And um, I... Um, I want to start just by maybe introducing people to your journey as a, uh, a wide-eyed Jewish kid from Weston. <laughs> um, I try to keep the Weston part a secret, but now it's out. Yeah. So I, I know um, someone who knew you back then, Sue Dell. Sue Dell. Um, oh. And she says you were, she's like, of all the people, she would never have imagined that you would uh, have achieved such things that you've achieved. What were you like in high school? I, I kept a good cover. Yeah. I was very good at, at the the mask and illusion was was pretty deep. <laughs> um, in high school, I was I was a really really good underachiever. Yeah, I, I, uh, you overachieved at underachieving. I was I was high marks. Yeah, I was high marks. I, um, 
I spent the first part of high school uh, not really doing sports, hanging out with the wrong crowd. Um, by the latter part, I got into swimming. I became a swimmer and, um, you know, I, that was my tribe, I suppose, by the end. Wow. But, um, but I sort of floated between groups. That's where I met Sudell. Sudell was a swimmer alongside sure. me. Um, yeah, I was sort of a floater. I never quite fit, fit in entirely. Um, or maybe I fit in too much with too many different types. And yeah. Yeah, I couldn't pick. I, well, I tend to not like to pick. When you went to college, were you looking to get away from it all and start over, or were you kind of like, whatever, it's just the next step? Or um, I was. I, I, it's funny. I went and, and um, I actually looked at schools that would allow me to swim. Uh, it, it's sort of like your path is sort of chosen by the people around you at certain stages. Yeah. Oh, you're now a swimmer. Like you should go to school for swimming. Okay, I right, should do that. Right. So I, I went to a bunch of schools. Skidmore had a team, and then. Uh, you know, I, I went and never, never swam a day in my, in my, in my life. I went, I, we started an ultimate Frisbee team. Uh, I got really good at de-seeding marijuana. That was, that was about my, my skills at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, you know, I went, I think Skidmore, um, Skidmore was idyllic. It was in Saratoga Springs. It sure. felt far enough away from family, but close enough that I could run home if anything ever really went wrong. Yeah. And yeah. So. What'd you do after school? Uh, I, after school, so after school, I went right into corporate America. I have a strong belief people should get like a real draw, job for a little bit. Um, my first job was at a company called Mercer Consulting here, actually in the Hancock, uh, and it was in accounting. Um, and so my job, I was in actually non, non-billable hours. My job was to go to all the consultants and get the non-billable hours and track them, et cetera. So I, I thought it would be easier than than, uh, you know, like calling up people at the time, calling up people to walk around to everybody's desks and just ask for their hours. Now, um, it was a, it was a great environment for young guy, you know, like to party and hang out. So I met a ton of people and all the rest. So I would go around every, every single consultant and I'd stop and I'd talk to him about three weeks in my boss pulls me aside and says like, you're disturbing the entire company. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm getting the hours in half the time. And they're like, no, no, you're disturbing the entire company. So my, my first lesson, uh, there was, I did this for about six months and then I got offered a job somewhere else. And so I made an appointment with the CEO of Mercer, this guy, Pete Blyler. Oh, if people Eiler's out there, I haven't talked to him since I would be interested in what he thinks of this story, <laughs> but I make an appointment with him. And uh, they were like, you want to make an appointment with Pete Blyler? I'm like, yep. And so they give me 15 minutes. And I remember they, they like walk me over to his office and they open like double mahogany doors and he's all the way at the end behind this huge desk and he's just sort of staring at me and I come in and I sit down and I say, so I'm in accounting and here's what I've done. Here's what I've achieved in your company. And I'd like to, I have another job offer. I'd like to know what you're going to do to keep me. And he looks me right in the eyes and he says, absolutely nothing. <laughs> and that was it. I literally, that was my last day at the company. Wow. Yeah. So I realized I might have thought of myself quite fondly in my own mind. You think that's where that comes from? Is an excessive self-confidence? Or what, that's a ballsy move. Like, what, what, do you, um, what do you think that's about? Ignorance. That was an ignorant moment. That yeah. was sort of a, you know the world revolves around the world you can see as opposed to like what's actually out there. Yeah. And I just saw my world. I was getting hours in half the time. I was a, you know, I was a, the most junior accounting person in the firm and telling the CEO why he should keep me. I mean, come on. Yeah. Like, just, just out of touch with reality. Yeah. 
Anyway, if you'd like Pete, if you'd like a job, I'm happy to give you one. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> what? Uh, so where'd you go after that triumph? Um, so, so this is a, a another funny story. Never give up. Uh, before that role, I had taken a math test for a catalog circulation firm, uh, a stats firm. Um, they were they were like mailing catalogs based on customer segmentation, et cetera. And I take the test, I failed. Okay, and so they came to me. I said, "You didn't pass. You don't get a job." So I went to Mercer. Anyway, I leave Mercer, and they uh, about two weeks later they call me and they say, "We've had two people quit. We'd like you to come in and take this stats job." <laughs> okay, so I like a little bit of a kick in the teeth in the way in. Anyway, I went there and I was harassed by all the other math people for for two years while I. Couldn't really do weighted averages, even though I was supposed to be in the stats department. <laughs> that was my second job. Um, yeah, so from there, what sort of led towards entrepreneurism? Um, I left those couple jobs. I went to a place called Kessler here. I really got my understanding of marketing. And I, I sort of had a mini, I guess, a life moment in my mid-20s where I said, I don't want to be in corporate America. And I, I left and went to intern. I really restarted. I went to intern at the Atlantic Monthly. I, I thought I wanted to write. And um, so I went there, and they, it was the dawn of the internet, and they had me finding quotes in books, and then we would paste them into their HTML. That was my entire job. Um, but what really happened there is as I was doing that, uh, one day they, they came in and said, you don't, um, we don't have a seat for you. You're, you're, uh, you know, you're the lowest man on the totem pole, but if you go downstairs, there's some desks. <clears throat> and I went downstairs, and at that time, they were just launching Fast Company magazine, uh, and so I go from this very staid Atlantic Monthly, like everyone's a writer and they're really serious. And I go downstairs and there's like papers flying in the air. And, you know, there's like, you know, Bill Taylor's running around and there's you know, <coughs> big covers of magazines. And like, I'm like, this is um, what is happening here. This is amazing. Yeah. Uh, and that that was the first like eyes open to like, OK, like it doesn't have to be uh, so rigid. There may be some other really interesting ways to do business. It's funny. I used him as a um, speaker at a sales event, and he was incredible. He's amazing. Yeah, uh, really in- inspirational guy. Yeah. Um, so, so it was really the culture, the lifestyle that drew you in initially. It sounds like. Um, and, and so, how did you move from that to you know? Uh, that's it's very different. Like you know, I, I love one of the things Darmesh always says is it's 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 fun to start a company, it's hard to build a business. Yeah. Um, so you were initially attracted to the fun of starting a company. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I left. So while they're interning, um, like what got what got me to the company side is, is really is the question, I guess. Um, what So what happened there is I was doing this interning. I still had some accounting experience, and I, so I started doing accounting at a little, little hippie shop, really, in Harvard Square. And there was a guy there who um, was a clerk, and he said to me, um, he literally, this is what he said, I have a business partner who hates me. Would you like to be my business partner? And I said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I did a 50-50 deal with him to start a promotions business developing cutting-edge merchandise for the entertainment industry, so bands and movies, et cetera. We would do like lenticular stickers and holographic lollipops and things like that. Anyway, he was, he was an unpleasant character for me. Um, this partner that his his partner previously didn't like him, and now his new partner, which was me, did not like him yeah. very much. Um, Trend there, yeah. He what basically happened is he uh, for after about two years, um, you know, I was I did most of the finance, I did the web stuff, I was doing most of the sales, 
and um, we just couldn't get along. And so I finally went to him and said, I'll, I will value the business and I will give you the number and you can either buy me or sell me, sell to me. I don't care. Um, and so I did that. I wrote down the number and gave it to him and he said, okay, I'm going to buy you. And I said, fine, that's no problem. Shook hands, walked out. Um, about three months later, my bank calls and says, um, hey, there's this guy, um, this, this partner, and um, he's requesting to take a loan out on your money in our, in our bank. Can, can he do that? So I'm like, what? so I call him up. I'm like, you can't buy me with a loan on my money. He's like, I can't? I'm like, no, you can't. So he says, all right, well, I got to sell. So I ended up then buying the company from him. And that was really the beginning of like owning it myself. Right. Um, yeah. Forced into it. Did you, um, what did you do when you were alone in the big chair? Did you make a bunch of changes in the business or was it really just about getting this guy out of your life? Um, this was the beginning of dot-com madness. So I did sort of revamp the business into an online, you know, you could order your merchandise right online. Um, it was probably five years ahead of its, ahead of time. It was like anything is possible online, but the bones, the infrastructure of, of what would make that really possible, not to mention the comfort of most people who were doing the buying wasn't really there yet. Yeah. Um, so I did that. Um, we promptly, we, we ran pretty well, um, grew the business, uh, raised a bit more money. 9-11 happened. I knew the business would not survive. Um, I called up five customers, um, five, five uh, competitors, not customers, uh, and uh, right after 9-11, and I said, I'm ready to sell. And um, four of them were like, fuck off. You'd, like, I paid you all along. You know, you guys are our competitors. <laughs> like, really nasty stuff. The fifth guy's like, I'm coming right over. And he came over and bought the company, um, which is all now like one of my defining lessons. Like, those who are your competitors could be your friends, and markets change, industry change. Always stay close to everyone in your industry. You never know what's going to happen. Yeah, the same in venture. Yeah, yeah. There are no yeah. friends and enemies in right. venture. Right. Only only deal specific allies and adversaries. Yes. Yeah. Um, so um, so you know on, on on balance a positive outcome. You know. Yeah, we did fine. Yeah, we we lost most of the investors their money, but it was also you know two thousand one. Everything was cratering. Sure. We got out. Like let's put it. Yeah. I, I look at it like we got out. We didn't. We didn't get too hurt. All right. So so I imagine you stepped back to reflect on that experience to figure out what you were going to do next. And what did you learn? And what did you decide? Yeah. So I learned a couple of things. I learned I would never ever start a company again. That was the first thing I decided um, and went and got a job again. I went and did business development for for a, a, another uh, technology company. Um, I that that was like a like a side gig. And then I tried to get like a real job and no one would hire me. I mean, it was it was oh one. It was you know, everything was in was in trouble. But everyone kept saying, you're going to go start something again. And I was like, no, I really, I swear, I don't want to ever do that again. That was the most miserable experience of my life. I had a bad partner. I, it was hard to sell. I lost people money. I don't want to do that again. Um, and But I kept, you know, I kept, no, no one would hire me, period. Yeah. And so I had a, I started reading about uh, word of mouth and um, I became, I get pretty obsessed about, about things I get curious about. And so I read, you know, Tipping Point and then Anatomy of Buzz and then Diffusion of Innovations and all the, you know, how does the psychology of ideas spread? And uh, I had like literally a light bulb moment, um, which basically was like word of mouth in some form can be turned into a direct mail campaign hmm. instead of, uh, you know, 
pulling out an envelope, putting an address on it, stamping it, and putting an offer into it, and hoping to get 1% return when you mail it. What if you sign people up, send them free stuff, and then let them talk about it and figure out how to track it? If you did that over and over and over, you would have a repeatable way to generate word of mouth. That's what we did. We started with the simple idea, if I get real people to talk, um, you know, they'll go do it. I went downstairs. I, I got into, like, hive theory as part of my obsessive compulsive search or word of mouth. And so I wanted a word with buzz in it. Uh, buzz agent with the U was taken. So I, it was BZZ agent and that became the business. Somebody must've told you this was a bad idea. So yeah, so um, everybody, um, we were turned down by 200 VCs or investors and VCs. So that was a, a good thrashing. Um, my, uh, you know, nobody wanted to buy. I mean, we called people left and right. Why would I buy that? Word of mouth doesn't matter. You know, I buy billboards. Doesn't it, scale. Doesn't scale, yeah. whatever. Um, at one point, my my wife at the time literally hosted an intervention. I, like, came in, and it was my, like, brother and friends and family, and, you know, and I'm like, what, what's going on here? Like, you shouldn't do this business. What do you mean? Like, we're all here to tell you, like, you should stop doing this business and you should move into something, you know, that will have value. Get a real job. Yep. And so, um, you know, I ignored that. I mean, it was, I was, you know, people often wonder, like, when do you, like, how do you know when is when, like when, it, when to stop? Um, and this one was weird. It was like, I knew in my heart of hearts, this had to happen. Like, like it was natural human psychology to talk about products we love. Like, how could this not happen? And so even with that, even being turned down, intervention just kept plugging. And, uh, Eventually, um, we decided to just run on the, we did it the old fashioned way. Hey, what if we sold this thing for more than it cost us to produce it? So we, we went out and said it's 70K to run a campaign. We kept banging on doors of companies and eventually uh, uh, Penguin Putnam Publishing actually was the first guys to say, all right, we'll do it. And uh, um, the rest is history. Yeah, revenue trumps capital. I'll tell you this. You know, we we ran the business with no outside capital until it was about three million in revenue, and um, you know, it, our fortune was greatly changed because we were now able to raise money on terms that made sense to us, that made sense to others. Like, it just changed everything. We'll be right back. How hard can it be? Is sponsored by G Twenty Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of twenty of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. The challenge in a business at that stage, and this is a, a, like I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I view this part of the business life cycle as one of your great strengths. It's it's difficult for me because I have trouble striking that balance between, you know, openness and conviction, hmm. right? That you you want to stay open to the external truth, right? And so if you if you always imagined it as a blue one, but eight people say they they'll buy it if it was red, you make a fucking red one, you That's know. That's right. Um, but then there are some things that are foundational that you you that are non-negotiable, and you have conviction about them. And like, how do you you know, as someone who's done this you know repeatedly. How do you figure out what is market feedback that has to be incorporated mm. and what is noise to be, you know, rejected? 
Yeah, for me, um, and I think I think it's like it's almost like learning a language or learning learning a way to you know read something you know. Uh, you know, like speed read, right? Um, for me, it's like patterns. It's pattern recognition. So, so if the first thing in any of my companies is I get curious and um, you, I start to understand the difference between like, this is just interesting and like, this is like, I'm curious, like I can't stop obsessing about what this is or why it's happening in the world. Um, once, so like people should recognize that in themselves. Like this isn't just a thing I like to do like 10 minutes every week, but like I, I think about it all the time. The second pattern is um, it's almost like um, it's like it's like the ma- I mean this is really cheesy in some ways but like the matrix is overlaid with this curiosity like I'll look around every day and like I'll see I'll see something in how someone's talking or I'll see something in like the way something is positioned you know out there you know in a building or you know just like it's all around you almost can't avoid it it some of it I believe is because you become conscious of it and so now it becomes really apparent to you but the patterns start showing up over and over and over and so that you get if you if you use those two things curiosity and patterns you eventually get to a point where um, you are such an expert in that philosophy that you can tell the difference between a customer need and and something that they would just you know like to have but isn't really the need. Right. Right. Not they, something I know. Pay for. I know you'd like red, but you really I can tell you blue is the pattern. Right? right. And we'll get there with you. You probably just haven't paid attention enough to the blue. So like let's let's work through it. But I'm not going to create red right now because I I really do understand what's happening here. Right. It's interesting that to me you talk about it as a process of discovery rather than a process of invention. Like you're looking for patterns in the world, you're observing yeah. these phenomena, these trends, and then looking for opportunity in that, as opposed to, you know, the classical Boston story is some kid at MIT creates Flubber, and they go build a business. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like you're not is that, that kind a real of company. Flubber. Flubber, it's a big thing. It's going to be huge. God. It's the Bitcoin of 2019. Can we invest right now? Well, I'm on it. Flubber. I'm on it. We're, okay. we're all over the Flubber. Flubber. We're in diligence com. on Flubber. Okay. Um, ah, God, I wish I'd made Flubber. Okay, so um, yeah, we. I don't invent. I'm really the heart for me is psychology. Like, what are the what are the human behaviors that get people to do certain things, and um, you know what's what's a burning need for them? Um, that's worked in my favor sometimes. Sometimes it hasn't. For for Buzz Agent, burning need like people absolutely like listen to others about products and services. Period. For smarter, burning need, we all like to prove our skills. We all like to know how our skills are justified against somebody else. Like, period. That's a psych behavior. Yeah. For Milestone, I think we were right about the psychology. People are struggle with how to memorialize. Um, where I think we missed a bit was the ability for people to pr- process beyond grief to get to memorialization. Yeah. And so um, we really struggled against that. Like, the human psychology was right on one side, like, of course, I want to remember those that I've lost. But on the other side, we missed the psychology of, um, you know, grief is a moving target for everybody. And you can't pinpoint that psychology and call it a repeatable pattern ever. And that we hadn't paid enough attention to when we entered that business. Right. Um, I was, I mentioned this before we started um, recording, but um, why Buddhism is True, that book, is all about what motivates us, and it's a model for the mind and the way we think and the role of emotion in, in um, you know, affecting behavior, which is something we both, you know, dug into a lot. But I would de- definitely read that, and for folks in the audience, um, really a great book if you're a student of human response, as both Dave and I are. are. Mm-hmm. Um, 
All right. So uh, that's a good segue to talk about uh, Flipside Crypto. So mm-hmm. um, on your, your you know, lifelong learner journey, you uh, struggle, you know, what, what was your first introduction to cryptocurrency? And uh, and and walk us through that process a little bit. Yeah, um, cryptocurrency is like the ultimate human narrative in in every form. It's I have a strong belief that it's fueled not by greed, which most most people believe it's fueled by. It's fueled entirely by jealousy. Uh, you know, first question you'll sort of hear when do you you know hey when did you start investing in crypto? Oh, 2011. Ooh, like ooh, 2011. <laughs> I was 2014. I'm, you know, I'm kind of, yeah, 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 like total jealousy, total jealousy. Did you get in on X? It's not, did you get on an X and make, it's, did you get in on it? Oh, I'm jealous you got in. It's all, it's all human behavior jealousy. So two things happened for me, both curiosity wise. Um, Well, my first, I should answer the question. First exposure was in 2012-ish. My buddy Dan Pratt said you should buy Bitcoin. uh, And so I bought one. And at 900, I think, and it immediately went to 200 the next day, literally. It just dropped to 200. So I was like, you're an idiot, and, <laughs> and I'm an idiot for doing that, and so forgot about it for a year. Uh, uh, and then someone in passing said, hey, you know, this, have you been paying attention to Bitcoin? It's over 1,000. I'm like, oh, wow, I made back my money. But it was sort of an aha, like something moved. Huh, that's interesting. It's starting to, starting to really move. Um, Two things really got got me going, though, that, that led us to this business. One was um, we had a friend who's a data scientist. He'd built some algorithms for uh, hedge fund equity trading. And um, we asked him as a lark to put cryptocurrency data into that algorithm just to see what would happen. Um, he did that, and we got some interesting data and uh, started like almost being able to see into the currencies themselves, like which things actually had maybe value in, in speculation. We built a second algorithm then to see value in developer activity. So like we could see into the into the asset class and realize that as soon as like we could see into it, like a whole new lens was was appeared before us. Like, oh, oh, I get the difference between these things. Okay. The second was really the magic though. So I saw the data um, and out of jealousy uh, my tech co-founder, Jim Myers, was trading stuff like crazy. Out of jealousy, I went to do it on my own. And I'm not technical. And I took my one Bitcoin off Coinbase and I put it into Bittrex and tried to buy Steam. And um, I got about halfway through after like two hours. I got about halfway through and then completely got lost. And I um, you know, I was like, where to go? And I don't know where the pri- what's the private key and who, you know, oh, my God. So I crawled back to Jim. And was like, I don't know what I did. And he, he said, hold on. And he downloaded a terminal. And here it is. And here's what you did wrong and all the rest. And I, the aha for me is even when you can see into this, like I, here's what I want to buy, the process and the energy to actually get to buy it, to safe keep it, to custody it, it's, it's really, really, really hard. And so that was the light bulb. It's not, uh, you know, we're, we're necessarily like the best traders in the world. We just happen to have really good insight next to the service that lets you actually get access with simplicity. Uh, and as soon as I told people that story, like, yeah, I think I, we have a good way to do this, it was like it was like the burning need just showed up. Like, I'm jealous that that guy is in on this and I'm not. Wait, you can get me in on this? Okay, I want in. How do I get into a club? Yeah. And that was, that was the beginning. If someone is trying to decide whether their idea is a good idea or whether an idea is good, and they want to put it through the Balter lens of is this a burning need and whatever, like what are the things they should be looking for? Are there are there kind of questions you can ask, or is it the way people react to something, or how can I use this as a way to test my idea, whatever that idea is? Um, 
So I definitely think there's a difference between people who want to build something and people who can't avoid but build it, right? Um, and you can, if you ask people enough questions and you poke at them enough, you'll you'll probably see the difference. Like, do you do you dream about this? Do you wake up wondering about it? Uh, do you you know like overhear someone on the plane talking about it and, and like even though you're an introvert, you're like, hey, I, I just got to, I heard you talking about this. Can we yeah. talk about it? Like, yeah. there's just behaviors you'll sense in yourself. Like, this is like an inward look. Like, ah, oh, that's really weird. That's really happening for me. You know, I feel like if you're not, if you're if you're doing it as a job, um, that, that's the question to ask yourself. Like, is this a job because I want to play startup or is this a thing I have to do because I think I can solve this? Yeah. Um, and I don't think people ask themselves that enough. Uh, they... Um, you know, there's a great entrepreneur, I think you probably know Vishal Sunak, who, sure. who runs Link Squares. Yeah. Like, Vishal, they're doing this great thing where they're, where they're uh, you know, scanning legal docs and building data sets out of what's in them for corporate clients. Uh, you know, and you'd ask yourself, like, would you want to be in a business where you're, you know, looking at legal docs all day? The guy, lo- he, like, he is infatuated with solving this problem. And, and it, there, there's no question, like he just thinks it's a huge issue, he thinks about it all the time, he wants to solve it, et cetera. And while nine out of 10 people, it would be a job to them, for him, it's an obsession. And that's why he's good at what he's doing in that job. So you just have to like constantly look for that in yourself. Yeah, and, and in a way, like even, even if the thing is out there to be discovered, willing it into existence is incredibly difficult. That's right. And so the intensity of your commitment to it is a predictor of success. It has to be. It won't always make you successful, but it certainly will keep you going when things aren't going so well or when, you know, when you sit in front of someone and t- try to tell them why they should join your business. Like it's it's like a it's like a horse or a dog like they can sense the fear, right? Like if you're not really that obsessed, you're not going to be able to track the next quality or you're not going to be able to get through that hurdle that nobody else could, you know, no one else could solve. And that's what, that's what it takes. How can you not love that guy? He's like a cuddlier Yoda in his ability to understand and capitalize on the human drivers of success at the core of every successful startup. All right, be sure not to miss out on my next conversation with a major luminary of the Boston startup community. Look up How Hard Can It Be on your favorite podcasting platform. Click that big subscribe button. While you're there, please consider giving us a quick five-star rating to help us spread the word. Thanks for sticking around, and I will see you next time.